Today I welcome Michael Bond, Headmaster at Brentwood School in the UK. In this episode I discuss virtues and character education, why diamond model schools work, engaging with alumni and why your head should blog. This is the first time we've met and actually we, we have quite a few things in common. I'm not a Newcastle supporter but my family are from there. You've travelled around the country throughout your career but as a Newcastle boy and a suffering Newcastle United fan, is that something you always intended to do? We were both homebirds, uh, you know, me from Durham, Suzanne from uh, Newcastle and we went away to uni, still in the north of England. Went home to do our PhD at Newcastle University, uh, met, got married and we moved into what at the time we said explicitly was going to be our forever home in 1997 in Northumberland and then so life took over and for reasons that I still don't fully understand I got a job as head of history at Christ College Brecon. Uh, We had absolutely no connections with Wales, I don't think I'd ever been to Wales, Uh, we had no family there and we moved just about as far away from our native northeast as was possible in the UK and once we'd done that again for reasons that I still don't really understand other than it was a beautiful part of the world uh, and a lovely little school, once we'd done that we'd sort of, I guess, broken the umbilical cord. And then after that, it was much less of a big deal when we relocated to Middlesex uh, to Merchant Taylors and then Hertfordshire to Berkhamsted and then ultimately to Essex. Again, where we have no real connections, but very much enjoying getting to know this much maligned and underrated county, as I would say. Very well put. And actually, if you track it on Google Maps, you know, your, your journey, you, I mean, you came diagonally across and then you're suddenly working your way back around the south, you know, going from west to east. Is there plans to finish your career um, back in the northeast? At the minute, I doubt it. I mean, I'm a year and nearly a term into my time at Brentwood and um, I'm 48. Who knows? Um, but, you know, as things stand, I'm thoroughly enjoying, you know, this role. And it's a big school with, which we might talk about in, in a moment, big school with huge potential. And I hope there's at least, you know, a decade or more of work here for me to do. So I suspect when we retire, we have our house that we own is up in Northumberland. So uh, we do still retain connections there. So I suspect ultimately we'll head back up there but for my career I'm not sure. As you mentioned you know Brentwood School was founded in 1557 and the world has obviously changed a huge huge amount since then but is there anything that you think is the same about school now as it was in 1500s? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I've got a, I've got a potentially long answer, but I'll try and keep it short. I mean, I guess most obviously, uh, the building that I'm actually looking at behind the camera, about less than 50 feet away from my office, is the building that the school was founded in. We tend to name buildings here in a fairly uh, predictable way. Uh, it's called Old Big School. The name's on the on the wall, really. Um, but that's where George Otway, who was the first headmaster, that's where he taught and looked after a grand total of five pupils when the school opened uh, in the 16th century. Not quite as old as that, but not long after that, uh, in 1622, the school's values, virtue, learning and manners were written into the statutes of the school and you know, have been used to greater and lesser extents ever since. And one of the first jobs that, that I did was to sort of kick off a long term strategy piece of work. And we started with the values and sort of you know, recasting what do we think those words mean in the 21st century. So I think there's a bit of building that's still the same and the school values are still very much, we think, we hope, inform the way we go about our business today. 
And that's great to see such an old established school. I think that's always the hardest thing for schools to do is to balance the traditions with a modern approach. And, you know, the modern approach is needed more and more because the world has fundamentally changed on a sixpence, particularly the last decade, when you look at the way that, you know, our kids access technology, the way we access technology, the way we have, you know, connection 24-7. The virtue, learning and manners part sits as a kind of a quarter around character education. And I know that character education sits well and truly at the heart of what you do. I've spoken to many heads on this podcast over the last few weeks around character, and it seems to be more and more popular now as a piece of education that we need to strive to elevate its position in the curriculum. Absolutely. I think more so than ever. It's a subject that really interests me, not just character education, but the bigger question of what should schools be preparing their children who are currently their pupils for? In one sense, schools have always had to do that. The anecdote of the parent who was asked on the occasion of their son or daughter's 40th birthday by their former head teacher whether the investment in their schooling was worth it. And the answer comes back, my dear fellow, it's far too soon to tell. You know, and that idea that at Einstein's, you know, education is what's left after you've forgotten everything that you learned at school. You know, in many ways, it's always been the case. I think, you know, there's plentiful evidence that schools have got to do two things that can potentially clash. We've got to help get our students to their preferred next steps, but we've also got to prepare them for them and what comes beyond that. And, you know, exam grades are absolutely necessary for the former, but they do very little for the latter, really, in terms of preparing people people for life and careers. And of course, we're seeing an increasing number of organisations move away from exam grades and qualifications in their selection, other than the very first crude filter. You know, schools have the challenge of helping young people, yes, get the best possible grades they can, but simultaneously by doing things that are going to serve them for much, much longer. And that is, you know, the development of their values and indeed their character. Yeah. Would you say there are any schools that are good benchmarks that other schools should follow? Yeah, I mean, there there are lots of schools that hit the headlines out there. um, And I think my question is always a phrase we used at one of my last schools that was, you know, looking under the bonnet. I think there are a lot of schools that do a great job, rightly so, of of marketing what they're doing. And my question is always, you know, what is under the bonnet? Are they actually doing as much as, as they say they do? But, you know, schools that are on one end of the educational spectrum, the likes of of B-Dales, you know, with their approach to a curriculum and an innovative way that they teach and that students learn. I think, you know, I see one of my roles as a head as sort of looking at learning from best practice in other schools and other organizations, not just schools, but other organizations that are doing this and and quite frankly cherry picking and then applying what's right for our setting so um i couldn't i, I'm, I wouldn't li- uh, list a real a name a list of uh, schools i'm, off, I'm not but, yeah 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 i'm but not, not going to put you on I'm not going to put you on the spot and give, and give me a kind of a, a top 10. There are some, your remark around authenticity, really. It's, I think that that's a really key thing, that looking under the bonnet is about authenticity. No longer can we thrive in a market where the, um, the brand, the organisation can say what they like and the, the consumer believes it. You know, no longer is promise good enough. I want to see the reality. Um, so I think that's really apt that, you know, as, as schools and leaders, we have to encourage um, everyone to tell that story, the reality. You've got to live and breathe your values that you put throughout your, your school as well. Um, do you remain relevant to the modern family at Brentwood? 
Yes, I, I, I think we do. I mean, you'd expect me to say that, wouldn't you? Of course. Um, one of the things that attracted to me this to this place, I'm a history teacher, so of course I'm going to be attracted by the, the history of the place and the deep roots that that gives us. But one of the things that strikes you about Brentwood, if you come, in the buildings is the fusion between you know traditional and modern. And a lot of schools say that, and rightly so. But I think here, when you come and have a look at our campus, you can see it in virtually every bit of the school. You know, we have got the old that has been fused into the new, and, and that is intentional, was intentional and is intentional in terms of the governing body and the approach to education because that mirrors what I think we genuinely do here at Brentwood. You know, we are in some ways a traditional school. You know, our prefects are still called preposters and and we have those traditions that all schools of this age tend to have, but we're very much a forward-thinking place. You know, we just created uh, a senior leadership role that is director of innovative curriculum and that person has got the job of, with our support, of defining what we mean by that you know it's, it's almost a blank bit of paper we've, we've created this role and we said go and tell us in six months a year's time of what you think should be on that bit of paper which goes back to the question of that the world of change in which we're living and all the stats about you know children will do jobs that don't exist yet and, and so on and so forth so I think we are absolutely uh, relevant to the modern world because the way we approach our craft is very much forward-thinking and creative yeah, and I love that title. I think curriculum redesign has been um, talked about for, for years now within education. I talk a lot around the future school and future school thinking, you know, challenging um, education to really think about how they best deliver fit for purpose education for this, this generation coming up. Um, and I actually run, run sessions with um, governing bodies leadership challenging it so getting you to think about it to go back and start to put in place you know ideas around what that that looks like um you talked about collaboration or you talked about borrowing the best bits from um other schools that that do great great things would you say that there is an appetite for collaboration in the in the uk independent school sector or is it still very much this is my castle i do it my way i'm not going to share uh, I think the, the authentic answer is is probably a bit of both. I think, um, I mean, I'm a new head, uh, so I'm only I'm new to this game, but certainly as vice principal and in and, and former roles, um, I always found, certainly within HMC, um, I always found a, fairly, a, collegiate, a collegiate atmosphere uh, and a willingness to share. Uh, certainly in my first year as head, um, uh, you know, the... Uh, and maybe COVID has, has helped here. Um, you know, the, he the heads who joined, who became heads uh, when I did in, in our, you know, the, the class of 2019, as it was, um, you know, we have um, actually got quite a, 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 well, a really helpful group uh, together. We've got a WhatsApp group. You know, we are uh, almost daily uh, asking questions, sharing ideas and so on. And I think that's probably is happening more because of COVID, because we uh, have all been in it together. Um, but so far, you know, my experience, uh, certainly within HMC, has been um, very, very collaborative and, and very, very open. And then beyond that, uh, one of my... Um, that one of the things that I started, but then got um, sort of deferred, I guess, by COVID, was was reaching out to um, uh, local colleagues in, in maintained schools and trying to see whether there's anything of the type of the York, you know, Independent State School Partnership or the Eastbourne Schools Partnership. You know, those those great collaborative partnerships that are already out there. Is there something in this part of the world that we could achieve uh, between the sectors? Because again, I think there's as much that we have to learn from each other uh, there as well. 
Yeah, and I think there's a duty on the independent sector to be able to share their skills, their resources, because you have more freedom than the state sector to help shape educational reform as you move forward. I want to get back to your foundations of virtues in developing a character. What traits do you think young people need? I think there's an interesting um, relationship between the values and the attributes that they need. And I don't claim to have made this metaphor. It was came out of discussion with Richard Backhouse, who's principal at Berkhamsted, and he and I worked very closely then. Uh, we were talking about that relationship between values of a school and the skills and the attributes that we need to be teaching children. And his take on it, which I, which I like and I've used uh, here, is that without the values, we could be teaching the children to develop attributes that would make them take a ludicrous example, you know, brilliant serial killers, you know, that they could be organized, uh, you know, forward thinking and imaginative and creative, but they'd be going in an entirely the wrong direction. So the values, I think, are the, are the compass, you know, um, the, they, they make sure that they're going in the right direction. And then the attributes that the students need, I think, you know, you look at any, you know, what will be the top 10 skills in 2025, and you will see problem solving, you will see communication, you will see teamwork, you will see the avoidance of working in silos, uh, and that collaboration. So we have a learner profile at Brentwood, uh, which is based on the IB, those attributes, some of which I've just mentioned there, you know, they are the things that will still be applicable, you know, in 2025, 2035, because a computer can't do all of them. So they'll be the things that will be relevant. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. One other important trait, and my wife and I share this, is that we've got four kids in four schools. You know, we've chosen the right school we hope and believe to be right for each child. And we want them to come out and be happy and confident. And some of your notable old boys, Frankie Lampard and Eddie Hearn, have recently been talking about how time at Brentwood shaped their confidence. These are talented men. Being at Brentwood shaped confidence. That must go some way to say what your education should be about. Absolutely. And, and again, you know, one of the things, you know, you, we've talked about authenticity today. That, that's really important to me. Um, I think I would describe that as one of my values. And one of the things that struck me when I first came for interview here was the idea that, and a lot of schools say this, but we say it and we really do mean it, that what we want to do here is help the children be the very best version of themselves. And, you know, we will celebrate the success of a student who ends up with BBC at A-level if that's the very best that they could achieve, as much as we will with someone with a full house of A-stars, because the chances are that student who's got BBC at A-level will have found the thing that makes them tick as well. And it might be a Frank Lampard on the football pitch, or it might be the next big thing in terms of drama and so on. And I think Brentwood School has got a long history of doing that. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, well, that attracted me to the school. It's that kind of, you know, we are a big enough school, we've got a broad enough range uh, of things going on that the chances are we can help you find out what it is that's going to be your thing or indeed your things. Not everyone wants to be an elite footballer. Some people want to be, you know, good at a range of things. So that's that celebration of the individual and being the best version of yourself that I think is, is a really powerful 
thing that many independent schools do, but certainly we prize here at Brentwood. You know, it's about finding that spark that's going to ignite a passion for life. And, you know, I wanted to be an elite footballer. Um, I actually had a Chelsea trial at the age of 11. Um, you can see how that turned out. So some people are destined for these things. Some people aren't destined for it, but have a passion for it. And I think that's the mark of a great school is to be able to help each young man and woman, you know, to be able to come through their, their educational system and find themselves. I want to talk about your diamond model because at Brentwood, it's a single sex wrapped up with a co-ed school into this thing that is called a diamond model. What advantage does this give students that come to your school? I think there are around 16 diamond schools in the country and I've worked in two of them now, Berkhamstead and, and Brentwood. And I'm not sure there are 16 different origins of them, but there are certainly a number of different ways in which the diamond has come about and there are a number of different ways of doing it. At Brentwood, in our case, it was chosen as the uh, preferred educational model rather than it being the merging of two schools over time and so on. So it was a conscious, intentional decision. And I think that the sort of simple and, and compelling message is that there is no education benefits to single-sex education in primary schooling. I don't think many people would claim that, that there is. Some might, but I don't, I've not seen any research that says that. There may well be educational benefit. Some people would debate it, but there may well be educational benefit, and we think there is, to boys and girls being taught in the classroom separately between the ages of 11 and 16, as long as they still have the social and co-curricular interaction with each other beyond the classroom. And there are definitely social benefits to uh, co-education at six for because, quite frankly, life is co-educational. So I think it's quite a compelling message. Some people would disagree with it, but it's quite a compelling message in terms of the model. And I definitely think there are benefits to having boys and girls separate in the classroom in terms of their willingness to contribute and engage and to not be as embarrassed about getting a question wrong and so on, particularly in those adolescent years when, uh, you know, scientifically, we all know that it's proven that the approval of their peers becomes so much more important to young people. It's quite a compelling message. Some people disagree with it, but I think there are real benefits as long as it's wrapped up with the reality that life is co-educational. Yeah, absolutely. And one of my children is in a diamond school and absolutely fits her perfectly. So again, you find the right school that's got to fit with you because not every educational approach is going to do that. You write weekly a blog on the Brentwood website. You cover some great topics. And I know your latest one, you, you talked about success, fame, addiction, and almost like this hard equation that maps to happiness, which I thought it's, it's a really fantastic area. And I wish I could have been in your assemblies when you talked about it, because trying to tell you your children that it's not about the material worth it's not about being the next instagrammer although you could do that you know ultimately how much money you have does not define the person but when they're going through those ages and you talked about the kind of 11 to 16 but even as they kind of come out of the sick form and they're trying to shape what they want to do money is inevitably the thing that they all go for how do we shape that and bring that more into a conversation? Uh, well, first of all, thank you for reading the blog. I'm glad to know that at least one person there has read, has read the blog. It's good news. Thank you. But in all seriousness, um, I think, actually, to go to that specific point about the materialism and so on, I do think and I do sense that the generation of children who are in schools right now are actually a little bit, in some way, less materialistic than my generation was. You know, I grew up in the 1980s where materialism was the, was the big pervasive 
pervading cultural influence of the time, one would argue. Um, I think there is more of a sense of roundedness about the worldview of many of our young children. I was interested in the, um, the survey, I think it was, was it Deloitte survey, um, Pulse survey that they did during lockdown, the Millennials and Generation Z survey they do every year. Well, they did two this year. One was in November, December, one was in lockdown. And the latter suggested, these are people a bit older than school children, obviously, but the latter suggested that people's worldview was shifting a little bit in terms of social responsibility, social justice, loyalty towards employers rather than moving around all the time. And whether that turns out to be transitory or whether that remains once COVID is long gone remains to be seen. I do think, I'm not saying we're pushing in an open door, but I don't think the door is locked on us, perhaps as it would have been 30 years ago. So I think it is important to give those messages, to let people disagree with them and to have that debate. And I also think and the reason I do the blog really is, is to give a, a window to parents who want to look at it and see what we're talking to the children about. I think it's to give them a window into that because uh, you know, not all of them will read it, of course, but those who do may agree, may disagree, but at least they'll know what we're talking to their children about. And there is a chance that we can you know, close that loop and all be talking about similar themes, which I hope they would deem to be an important thing. I think it's a great topic-based approach that you have for picking these things apart, bringing them as part of your blogs, your assemblies, your conversations you're having with your community, rather than just the normal kind of, this is what's happened, this is the success, this is what this team did. Actually challenging those subjects areas is hugely important but not all heads do that or some heads are very kind of happy just to sit in the sidelines run a good ship how important do you think it is for you to have an opinion and to be able to share your lens with your community I think it goes back to authenticity. I think if I'm marketing the school to prospective parents, I would want them, when they become actual parents of Brentwood School pupils, to see that what they, they're not just buying the school for me, but what, what they'd bought into was actually what they were getting, you know. Um, so I think, it, again, it, it comes back to that authenticity. And in terms of opinions, obviously, I'm careful to create balance in terms of equivalent arguments. It's not for me to say to young people whom I may well influence in the way I say it. It's not for me to say they should think in this way. It's to put in front of them a debate, to put in front of them a challenging question or issue, and to actually be the guide on the side rather than the sage on the stage in terms of helping them make their own informed opinion up about which side of that debate they fall on rather than me imposing what I think. So I think the way you do it's important, but I think it is important that you do it. Martin is a part of school leadership it has to it's often a dirty word I think used within common rooms within schools because the teachers and everyone feels that it's not really for them to do what are your views that everybody has a responsibility within a school to market it and to do the best they can that's a good question and I think I would be at the top of the list of people for whom it doesn't come naturally to sell things you know I'm not a salesperson in that sense the way I reconcile that is as long as I'm talking about things that I passionately believe in, it doesn't feel like marketing at all. It just feels like I'm talking about education. So again, it's authenticity. I would never want to sell something that we weren't delivering or indeed that I didn't believe in. But if I believe in it, but it is marketing, but it doesn't feel like it, it's actually just talking about your passion, which is education.
educating young people. And I think most teachers would get that. Most teachers would, would not have a problem with talking passionately about what they do and why they do it. I think if you say to them, you've got to sell the school, some of them will recoil in horror. If you're saying to them, we'd like you to talk about why you think what you do is really important. I think most teachers will say, yeah, bring it on. And people don't buy it. And, you know, I'm going to offer you a job here because you kind of just, you actually took out kind of our language straight out of my mouth, really. And that is, you know, we wholeheartedly believe that every school is different because of the stories you tell the people you have there. You're utterly unique. You know, yes, you might have the same educational philosophy model, but what you do is completely different. And marketing is not actually the same as telling a story. It's part of the bigger marketing effort. Getting teachers to passionately talk about and share what they're doing is incredible. And it gives a sense of authenticity in a picture of a school that you'll never get by just waiting for a marketing person to do it. So I'm really glad that you're leading from the front in this. And we can see that in your website. We can see that in your stories, on your social media, across the schools. It's looking great. You really get a lens on what makes Brentwood great. That does go back to purpose, you know, core purpose. Why do we do what we do rather than just reeling off exam results or sports fixtures? You know, why are we all here and what are we doing? Fantastic. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.